Good evening. A siege is underway in the Tasmanian town of Port Arthur, where at least 25 people have been shot dead in Australia's worst massacre. Another 26 are wounded. The gunman is holding police at bay. He's believed to be holding at least one person hostage. Most of the victims are reported to be tourists visiting the historic penal colony at Welcome Port back Arthur. to a special edition the of The Chase Report. The I'm report. one of the interns, Xander, and today Dom and I are talking to Justin Kurzel, the director, and Sean Grant, the writer of the new Australian film about the Port Arthur massacre, Nitrum. Grant Kurzel previously brought Snowtown and the true history of the Kelly Gang to our screens, and Nitrum was most recently a finalist at the Cannes Film Festival in France. It doesn't name the shooter, nor does it show the actual shooting yet it's a harrowing look at one of the darkest days in Australian history. We understand this conversation may be difficult for some people to listen to, but we believe it's an important one that needs to be had. We talk about how they approach making such a sensitive topic and adapting it for the screen, how they went about casting this film, and what's changed in the last 25 years since 1996. That's after the break. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When he was a little boy, we used to play a game at the fabric shop in town. He'd go off and hide in all the big, tall rolls of fabric. And then I'd try and find him. He loved it. I loved it. But then this one day, I went to find him, and he wasn't there. He lived everywhere. Not in the silks, not in the cottons. Ran into all the shops, strangers were stopping to help me. Tears streaming down my face. gave up and went back to the car. But then, I heard someone laughing. I looked around, and there he was. Lying on the floor of the back seat, looking up at me, laughing. Laughing at my pain. Laughing like it was the funniest thing in the world. Justin and Sean, thank you so much for joining us here on The Chaser Report. Yes, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Your films in the past have looked at quite a few dark subjects, Snowtown and, and Ned Kelly. What drew you to this very, very dark day? Um, uh, well, it, it, was, it was Sean's script. Um, I mean, he he didn't tell me he was writing a script uh, that was, um, you know, influenced by um, by that tragic day. 
Um, so it, it really arrived out of the blue for me. Um, I mean, I, th I think years ago we sort of talked about whether there was a particular sort of point of view um, or a particular way of um, looking at that uh, particular event. Um, but, but, but it was really quite a shock and surprise to sort of, you know, open up your inbox and see, uh, you know, see a script sort of sitting there that, that, that is about that day. And, you know, and I, I, I live in Tasmania. I have for the last four years and I'm married to a Tasmanian. I've been, Tasmania, I've been going back and forth for 25 years. In fact, Essie and I met probably a week before um, the Port Arthur shootings. So I kind of, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sort of deeply aware of the seismic event of, of this and, and the, the, the very, very deep wound that it, that it has, uh, you know, in Australia, but especially, especially down here. Um, but there was something about the, the screenplay that um, was so affecting and it was so powerful. It was probably the best screenplay I'd read from Sean. Um, and it was really sort of this moment for me in the, in the, in the screenplay where the character walks into a gun shop and, um, you know, without a license is able to buy two semi-automatic weapons, um, like he's buying fishing rods. Um, and I guess at that moment that he does it, Sean constructed this uh, film in a way that it felt the character was at their most dangerous, I guess. And there was just something so compelling about uh, just the absurdity and the sort of tragedy that, that, that someone in this particular place and this dangerous was was um, yeah was was able to kind of be in this scene, um, and and it was the most powerful scene when it was written. It was the most powerful scene when we shot it, and it was the most powerful scene when we sort of edited it. It, it really was this kind of the heart of what I thought the film was about. So even though I knew, you know, that the, the film would cause a lot of concern in regards to sort of making it I, I felt very strongly that what it was trying to say especially about gun reform in a narrative in a in a, in a story and and emotionally it it it, it um you know packed a pretty powerful um sort of punch so um the screenplay was just too incredible for for, for me not to try to sort of investigate it and um, see whether there was a possibility of being able to bring it to screen in a way that felt, you know, that felt uh, gentle and felt sensitive and felt aware of exactly kind of what it was. How do you go about, you know, reading a screenplay like that? Do you have to take yourself out of your day, go outside? Or is there a process to doing it? Um, the good ones you just start no matter where you are. You could be in a cafe, you know, surrounded by people. You could be amongst your kids at a kitchen table or you could be, you know, uh, in a really quiet place. They, they will always grab your attention. So um, the bad ones you, you uh, <laughs> lose, <laughs> you lose focus pretty, pretty quickly. Um, I mean, that, that's sort of, you know... You, some people it takes 10 pages, some 15. I think there is actually a particular page in the industry that says if you're not, you know, if you're not there by page, whatever. Um, <laughs> Probably page two. Yeah. In the film industry. Yeah. yeah. I, I've, yeah. I've had that. I've had page two. Um, but yeah, but when you've got, 
when you've got a good one, everything disappears and it's quite extraordinary. You start to see it. You start to hear it and you start to feel it and you start to imagine what these characters look and feel like, um, you know, and, and that's when you sort of know, you know, you, you have to do it. Sean, I'm fascinated to hear that despite your collaboration with Justin, this arrived as a finished product in his inbox, really. What drew you to this particular story and what um, influenced how you decided to tell it, focusing on the perpetrator in the way that you do? Yeah, it was uh, it's different. You know, we, we work differently. I mean, this was the first kind of what we call a, a spec script where I just go away and write it. And it was the first one I'd done since Snowtown. So Snowtown, I was, you know, it, it was one where I'd just written it and then sort of handed it over. And I've been very fortunate to be um, gainfully employed since that film and I haven't actually had time but the idea like Jazz mentioned you know I remember we kind of handed in the shooting script of Snowtown essentially and Justin and I didn't know each other prior to, to Snowtown um, and uh, we enjoyed each other's company and we enjoyed the process of working together and you know he kind of mentioned you know anything else in that head of yours you know <laughs> looking at similar sort of themes or whatever else and and I you know like yourself you mentioned earlier before we sort of started recording it about where you were on the day of the event you know if you're old enough you remember where you were we should preface Xander wasn't alive yeah yeah in 996 but yeah it was I was at a family wedding and um it was just the most consequential and bizarre day for me where were you Sean I was uh, in Bendigo at a country football game. I think I'd just played earlier. And then uh, I was watching a game. The older guys were playing. And and I clearly remember something had happened. And it was like Chinese whispers. You could see people whispering and talking to each other. And it kind of wrapped around the oval. And I was waiting to find out what what is this conversation that's sort of taking place until it reached me. And the news came across of this tragedy that occurred. And, and I think in the space of 12 days from that moment, you saw the worst of our nation and you saw the best in terms of the gun reforms and what we were able to achieve. Um, you know, and a lot of people talk about Australia's great finest moments and they're usually involving a ball or a, or a sailboat or something. Mm-hmm. I think what we managed to achieve in that period was, was the best of what we've done as a nation in lots of ways. So it was a seismic event. It was in my memory for ages and when Justin mentioned it, I said, look, there's something about this event that I that I think needs to be spoken about. But right then I didn't know why or how to do it. And it took me, I think, you know, we've been working together for a decade now and it took me that probably long before, uh, before I could. And it really, the, I guess the genesis of the screenplay came out of my life experience of I... I you know, started working in in Melbourne and then my work took me to Los Angeles and where I lived for six years up until sort of COVID brought me home last year. And, and, you know, in in America, as you'd know, watching the news, mass shootings are all too familiar occurrence. And uh, I just kept seeing them repeated. And every time they're repeated on the news, uh, Port Arthur is raised um, by late night hosts or news broadcasters or whoever as, you know, this shining example of what can be achieved through gun reform. And I, and it just kept coming back to me. And then in sort of 2018, uh, a few th- things sort of happened. My, my wife went to our local grocery store or no, she was due to go to the grocery store and got called into work and couldn't. And a, and a gunman went in, started Gosh. shooting and that was very close, you know, in the US. down the road. Yeah. In the US, yeah, in, in Los Angeles at a Trader Joe's. Anyone that knows LA knows their Trader Joe's. Yeah. And, uh, 
And then uh, sort of late October, early November, there were two mass shootings in the space of 10 days, one in Pittsburgh and one in um, Thousand Oaks, California. And, and it, just, it just kind of built up. And it was really, NITRAM came out of this frustration of what I was seeing and what I was you know, experiencing in the nation that I was living at the time. Yeah, and I really, I just sat down and, and wrote and I kind of knew the why in that instance. I knew that, you know, I was fundamentally making an anti-gun film. Uh, that's what I was interested in doing. And I was trying to figure out the best way to do that. And over the years, I'd kind of started working on it and looking at it through police's eyes or victims or survivors or anything, you know, all different ways, uh, different time periods. But it was really, it was building to that scene Jess was talking about. I had to place an audience in the shoes of someone that should not have a weapon to understand why we need gun reform and gun legislation. Um, and, and take them through, you know, 70, 80 minutes of it and then go watch how easy this was and how easy it still is in certain nations. How do you decide what to include in a film like this? What kind of research do you do? Who do you choose to leave in? Who do you choose to leave out of the story? It's uh, a good question. Well, I, I obviously because of the sensitive nature of it, um, no one really wants to be involved in a story like this. Like, you know, if, if you lived it, you don't want to be part of it. You don't want it mentioned and I totally understand that so you know I, I, I made choices very early on in the screenplay that I sent Justin he was the first person to read it was if if I could tell the story without including someone I would do that so there were fundamental characters obviously perpetrator himself and his mother and father that kind of needed to be there but there are ones that are left behind and people that know the story well will go oh there was a such and such was a character and such and such wasn't and I just if they didn't fundamentally change what I was the story I was telling, um, then I chose to leave them out, um, and that was that was kind of my decision um, made. Um, yeah, that was just a kind of a I guess a moral decision. One of the really interesting things about it is we always ask why when something like this happens, when there's an unspeakable tragedy, is we ask why, but most of us don't get to see that explained most of us don't get to actually understand in the level of depth that we get from this film how an event like this happens but i found the story quite weird and quirky with um with characters that i wasn't expecting justin how did you feel actually bringing this to life and these moments of humor and and bizarreness that um that some people might not have known about what was it like trying to sort of animate this story um as you went through the narrative yeah, I mean, it was sort of interesting, you know, when I first read the screenplay, it sort of started like a family drama. It was kind of like a Chekhov and Nixon play, you know, it was sort of, you, you you felt this sort of really strong sort of family unit. And what what was also really quite um, telling about the screenplay is that I started to, it, it just felt familiar. These characters sort of felt recognisable and familiar. I, I, I sort of... You know, I knew that boy that's that that's walking, you know, along the street, but you cross the road so you don't pass them. I kind of, you know, I know the kid who used to hang out at school, um, who was far too old to be hanging out the front of the school and sort of, you know, playing with 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 stuff with the kids. And I kind of knew that family at the end of the cul-de-sac in a kind of fifties brick home. Um, I know that fatigue that you can see on a mother in a supermarket that's sort of dealing with, you know, a kid that won't sort of, you know, won't do what she's asking them to do. I mean, I, there was something that felt very, uh, I, you know, I, I, I could just recognise it. And 
And I think that that's, you know, when you're telling a story like this and you're asking an audience to get to know a group of people and then at a particular point in the film, you're going to, um, you know, you're going to sort of show how that, I guess that, that person that you thought you knew, uh, you don't. Um, this family that you thought you knew, you don't. Um, that was really important. So there is, you know, I, 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 there, there's a there's a world around it, a, a world around these characters that that was very strange and it was um, very odd, and the relationships uh, are odd. But you know, the, the the film deals with, I guess, isolation a lot as well and 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 all these characters in their own way were incredibly isolated individuals that kind of in some strange way needed each other when that sort of started to break down then you got you know into a kind of really dangerous situation where you sort of could feel this particular character falling through the cracks so um you know the the the, the character in the film helen who um you know was a relationship that 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 uh was sort of developed um it is a really unusual relationship it, it, it you know for the character of nitram um suddenly he is open to the world of music and the world of art and and there's a sort of cultural connection that he starts to make and and i found that i found that really interesting you know sean i, I guess the other thing is you know sean and i always thought that this film was also about identity and about trying to be part of something that you're never going to be part of. And I think there's a, you know, especially in 90s Australia, there's a kind of physical kind of sports surf world that for young men, if you weren't part of that and you could never attain that, it's kind of like, well, well where did you fit and sit? Um, and that idea of never belonging to a kind of tribe, never belonging to a group or never being accepted mm. into a group um, you know, in Australia, we, we, we hold those things really close and, and, and dear. We want to desperately be part of a kind of comradeship. And this was a really interesting screenplay that kind of, you know, forced you to kind of look at, well, what is it if you're not? You know, what is it if you aren't that kind of, you know, type of Australian male? Um, where do you go and where do you fit? Um, you know, we thought it was really telling that at, at a point where all those tribes had kind of left this character, that suddenly this gun culture came into his life that did accept him um, and did introduce him to, to, to these, you know, to a pretty dangerous world. Um, so there was something, you know, there's something, you know, it's, it's always a fine line when you're telling a story like this with a character like this, but, but you know, it is also important to be able to allow an audience to kind of go, I feel like I know this world. Um, and, that, and that was something that we were, you know, wanting to really focus on. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
For someone who wasn't alive during the Port Arthur massacre, one of the most unsettling things about this film was how deeply rooted it felt in an Australian suburb. It didn't have to be Tasmania. It could be right here where I am now. What did you do to go about representing Australia in a way that felt authentic on screen and could resonate with both people who are alive in the 90s and also now? I think it was really important, especially sort of 90s Australia. I think there are so many... I, you know, I had flashbacks. Definitely, life was a, life was a bit more simple in, 90, yeah. in the nineties in Australia. In that there was no real internet, so you know, every Saturday night, hey, hey, Saturday came on. You knew the cricket was going to be on the Sunday. You, there, were, there were all these tropes that we all kind of knew what was Australia in a way, and and they were really strong. So there, there was something very important about that. To, to, to bring on screen and and that you sort of felt even with Wheel of Fortune playing that oh, I know that you know I, I, I remember you know 5 30 while mum was cooking the chicken schnitzel in the background was you know baby John Burgess you know that he was in my home every single night like that to me is Australia in the summer of, of 96 so there, there was something you know that there's something that's really important, I think, about those um, little little motives. And it, there is a sort of, you know, I think Australia has changed a lot since 1960. But you know, what what Sean and I were really aware of, and it's interesting, you know, we it's it was such a seismic event, you know, that everyone remembers where they were, as we sort of discussed. But then you start to realise that there's a generation, two generations, my kids now who are 15, who really don't know much about it, you know. And, and down in Tasmania, when you speak to young people, it, you know, because it's not spoken about very much, because it's almost taboo to, to, to talk about it, the, the conversation, the dialogue about it is very, it's very thin, you know. So it, it's, it's, you know... We felt the power of gun reform because we felt on that day we were shocked, as shocked as mm. September 11th. You know, we felt the world had changed after, after the Port Arthur shootings. And the fact that gun reform happened in 12 days, you completely understood and got, why wouldn't it? You know, I mean, it's extraordinary that it happened, but why wouldn't it? But now, you know, it's 25 years, generations haven't really had an opportunity, I think, to sort of understand it, talk about it, discuss it. And, you know, I find that really curious that now those gun reforms, you know, are being softened. We have more guns in Australia now than we did in 1996. And, you know, that, that, that conversation about why it was so important at that time, you know, is, is one that we find difficult talking about. Yet there's a whole generation of Australians that, you know, it, it, it's something that happened, you know, before we were born. So it, it, it's, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's it, it, you know, we had a very, very young crew too, you know, and there was a, long, a lot of people in the crew that um, weren't really aware. So it was, I, I think Sean and I found that quite shocking that, you know, it was for something, for some, you know, this event for us is something that's just there. It just sits there. But, you know, for, for many others who weren't born when Port Arthur happened or who were young, very, very young, um, 
it's 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 there's also something about the film that is incredibly tasmanian and i can't quite put my my finger on it i'm someone who's been to tasmania a couple of times you know i went to mona i thought it was beautiful i really enjoyed the waterfront in hobart but i don't feel that i have any insight into tasmania's soul but i think this movie somehow captures an element of that um the distance the isolation but then the the sort of natural splendor there's all these sweeping shots of the coastline and all this kind of stuff and some of the pivotal moments happen in an incredibly beautiful seaside location. Um, Sean, as someone who, who's not Tasmanian, uh, how did you um, try and put Tasmania in the film and, and how did you deal with the, I guess, distinctive nature of the, of the society and the, the community you were writing about? Well, I mean, I probably lent on Justin a bit for that, having, you know, his experience being there is, is as long as the event is, I guess. He's been there for 25 years. So um, really for me, it was it was just the Australian nature of it. And, and you know, it, it's nice of you to say that, even though those things that you mentioned, we actually didn't shoot. Uh, obviously, the film was made uh, in the fair city of Geelong and, and, and surrounding um, areas so uh, th- that it gets that sense you know I- I'd-, I'd probably defer to Justin as to how <laughs> as to how that comes across my, my... it was convincing for me as someone who doesn't know Tasmania well enough yeah, to, yeah. To, to pick it and I assumed he hadn't filmed it there given all the sensitivities but um, am I right in saying that there's something really Tasmanian about this story Justin or do you think it's more universal I suppose perhaps it can be both at once look there's a history in Tasmania that is pretty dark you know there's a there's probably, you know, I mean, even the Port Arthur site, the, 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 the level of violence and brutality that went on there um, with, with, with those that were imprisoned at Port Arthur is, is horrific. Um, more horrific is, 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 is probably one of the worst acts of genocide towards the Indigenous in Australia happened in Tasmania. You know, these, you know, those conversations people just don't have. <laughs> You know, I mean, we as Australians don't have, we don't, we don't seem to be able to have kind of sophisticated, honest conversations about really awful things that, you know, we did. And, uh, you know, so there, there is a, there are ghosts here and there, there's, there's uh, a lot of wounds and I kind of call it the albatross around our necks a little, you know, that there's, there's, there's some darkness here that, um, you know, we, we, we need to talk about and we need to discuss and, and, it, and it's just part of the fabric of this place. Um, also, this place is the most beautiful place in the world. It, it's, it's natural elements, the people, the communities here. Um, it is truly sort of Australia's secret. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a, just a gorgeous place. I mean, I, I moved back here from London um, to bring our kids up here because I just thought this is the best place for children to grow up. So, you know, it's, it's complicated, um, but, but unfortunately, you know, the, the Port Arthur shootings are part of Tasmanian history and, and you know, they, there is, um, you know, we, I think there needs to be a discussion and conversation about many things that have happened here, um, but um, yeah. I went on the website for Port Arthur, the historical site, um, ahead of this conversation and Notice that they do ghost tours. I was just thinking, gosh, that would be the strangest, given what has happened more recently. I just couldn't even imagine having to deal with the legacy of that in a fun, spooky event. But it's always there, isn't it? It's, it's part of the story of that place forever. Yes, you know, I just sort of recently heard, you know, the, the, 
you know, obviously before COVID happened that, um, you know, there were a lot of international tourists um, very interested in sort of what happened, uh, you know, on, on that day in Port Arthur. Um, you know, and the, the guides are sort of, you know, sold, told not to talk about it and they're, they're given a brochure to hand out to, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, the Tasman Peninsula, it's, it, it is one of the most beautiful parts of, of Tassie. It's, you know, the, it's just stunning. It really is. And, you know, but there is a stigma, obviously, to it because of, um, because of what happened. So there is this sort of feeling of, you know, how, how do we move sort of forward and, and, and how do people see this place in, a, in, a, in another way, but at the same time being honest about, you know what what has happened there not not just uh with um port arthur shootings but but also i think you know back to its origins one of the most incredible things about this film is the performance of caleb laundry jones as nitram he just won best actor at khan how do you go about getting that performance from an actor and what was it like having to choose someone to play this role uh well with it was very strange, you know, it so shouldn't have kind of worked in a way. And Sean and I instantly sort of thought of him and I don't quite know why we did because he's American, he's Texan. And uh, it just seems, it just seemed like the, the, the strangest kind of choice, but our instincts kind of, for some reason gravitated to this really unusual, interesting kind of looking guy who we'd known from a few films who we thought was really super talented. And we just had an opportunity to meet him in Los Angeles and he came along to a sort of cafe and he was kind of wonderfully unlike anyone we'd met before and uh, kind of inquisitive, intelligent, completely unique and strange and odd, but was we sort of instantly knew within the meeting. I think he bought some boiled eggs the way he was kind of like cracking the egg shells and eating them in front of us and stuff that, you know, you, you do as a director, when you're sort of meeting an actor, you start sort of watching their mannerisms and you start sort of thinking, ah, is there something kind of here, here, who is this person? And then he followed us to a, our next meeting with another actor, um, you know, very pleasantly, um, just didn't want to stop sort of talking to us to the point where we actually sort of had to say, oh, look, we're going in for another meeting <laughs> and, uh, you know, say goodbye to him. But I, I, Sean and I just knew instantly that we didn't know whether he could do the accent and that was something huge, but we knew that for our vision of the character, he, he embodied him straight away. So, um, you know, it was really then just sort of learning the accent, which is the hardest accent to learn. Uh, I can't believe how good he was. I've never heard an American do it that well. No, no. You know, usually hear English. Like I thought Dev Patel in, in Lion did a really awesome accent. And, and mm. we have to sort of give kudos to, to Jen Kent, who's the amazing voice coach. She worked with Dev as well online, worked with Caleb. But it, not only that, you know, but also 90s Australia, Tasmania, they're, they're, that is a particular kind of accent as well. So it was really nuanced and I got him to watch a lot of 90s shows. So we watched a lot of Home and Away, a lot of, you know, Neighbors, a lot of Hey, Hey, it's Saturday, a lot of, a lot of sort of shows that, that come from the period. And it was really interesting. You, 
you do notice an accent change from from what it is now. Um, and Caleb came on set with a very, very particular sort of, yeah, accent from the 90s in Australia. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I imagine it wasn't enormously hard to uh, <clears throat> to put your wife, Essie Davis, in the role of Helen, but um, Judy Davis and Anthony LaPaglia are also extraordinary. The whole cast is, even the, the gun dealer pulls it off remarkably. Um <clears throat> How did you go about working with those legends of the Australian screen? Because they don't look like themselves to me in many ways in this film. Yeah, well, we, we knew that we wanted a really tight ensemble of, of, of four really um, fantastic actors. Um, and, then we, and then we surrounded those actors with non-actors. So a lot of those other cast members around them are all from Geelong. And, you know, the travel agent's a real travel agent, the car salesman is a real car salesman, the doctor's a real doctor. But we wanted, oh, okay. we really wanted this tight ensemble uh, at the beginning. I mean, Judy is someone that I, I just adore and I have for so long and I've always, it's always been a dream to work with her. And fortunately, she she came on board and it was really interesting because she was talking about both characters and in the end, she, she really felt as though the mother was, was a really hard role and, and really crucial to the film. Um, and, and, you know, and Anthony would have been a huge fans since Lantana and they all, you know, it, they, they, all, they were all really keen on just sort of doing something simple, you know, and stripping back to, you know, something very real and very authentic and, um, you know, which is really confronting at times, but, but, but it's actually can be incredibly liberating. And they, you know, we were very interested in, you know, no makeup and, you know, uh, how, especially against some of these other people that were real, you know, real people in the film, how, how they would sort of match with them and blend in with them. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's like Essie, you know, putting in, putting her in a pair of tracksuit pants and telling her not to get her hair re-dyed and, and wearing braces and, you know, and everyone kind of looking and feeling quite simple, you know, that they were all pretty amazing. There was no <laughs> vanity. There was absolute sort of belief in getting it right. And I do notice the same thing happened with Snowtown. You know, when you, when you are working on projects that you've got to be very careful about and you know if something has happened in real life with the characters that you're, you know, um, that, have, that have been influenced uh, that have influenced the, the characters written, um, you know, it's really, it, it's really important 
for there to be a sort of respect there and, and for you to sort of walk tenderly. Um, so we're, we're very, you know, they're, they're amazing people and they're incredible to work with, but there was also this sort of heightened sense of, you know, trying to get this right. I think a lot of people imagine directors as super hands-on trying to really micromanage a performance in what's it like trying to direct actors where you've got people from the real world, you've got people like Caleb Lorne Jones and Essie Davis who are seasoned professionals. How do you try to elucidate performances? Well, on this, on, on this one, I did something that I, I took to the, I, I took to the, um, to the extremes a little bit. I, I just, I decided not to direct in a way, <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't, you know, when you're working with non-actors, because you are working with people that have an authority on the person that they're playing. So if you've got a doctor there on set that's playing a doctor, that's been a doctor for 30 years, well, the idea of me coming in and telling him where to move, what to say, how to be, whatever, just seems kind of ridiculous. But the idea of sort of saying, I think the scene's kind of about this, just something really simple and then allowing them to be, um, that, that becomes the real key. And, and in some sense, it's the way I worked with Judy, Anthony, Essie and Caleb as well, which was just to create situa- situations that feel very real and keeping the set really relaxed and just keeping things really simple and low key um, and trying not to direct, you know, not coming in with, you know, a hundred things to say to an actor because, you know, when an actor is given a hundred things, that's all you can see them thinking about when they're acting as opposed to actually just listening to the, to the person opposite them. Um, and, and that was a huge part of this, you know, the, it was the first time I'd used so many reaction shots of people, you know, the characters actually watching Mitram, mm. you know, a lot of it is about sort of watching, what are they going to do? What does that look mean? You know, what does that walk mean? Is there a shift there? What's going on? So it was really interesting how that became a kind of style in the film of, of actually how you watch someone and, and how you look. So it was the first time I used probably so many reaction shots where you felt like you as an audience were watching with the mother, with Helen, with the father, this character that you couldn't quite trust. And could explode at any point and, and does in the most shocking yeah. ways. Sean, in terms of writing this screenplay, it's so stripped back and so sparse and in many cases so visual. How did it evolve from your first draft? Was it always that minimalistic and, and I guess, simple, particularly when you're dealing with someone who, whose ability to express himself is so um, limited and who really says so little? How, how did, you, did you conceive of it in the way that it turned out? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I suppose I did. Look, it was always going to be that, you know, it was interesting coming from the last film Justin and I had done was uh, True History of the Kelly Gang, which, you know, has quite, uh, quite a, a certain language to it, you know, and, and there's quite wonderful flourishes that, that I took from Peter Carey and there was, a, there was a totally different thing, whereas this was very much more stripped back to the first film, which was Snowtown, in, in being, you know, very, very naturalistic as much as possible and keeping it really sparse. And, and, and sometimes, you know, screenwriters are kind of, you know, when there's so little, the, the script can kind of be forgotten because, you know, normally it's the big monologues and, the, you know, those scenes that chew that, that are always talked about when it comes to writing. But, yeah, just to keep it as simple as possible, I know that's what um, uh, Justin is attracted to as much as I, to make mm. it feel real. So when Xander talks about, yeah, that felt, you know, that felt familiar to me, that's the greatest compliment. I oh, think, yeah, is, is, you know, is that, that it feels 
real, you know, it's, it's interesting. And some of those, you know, placements of scenes and, and, and how they operate and, and making it feel relatable is what really sticks out in people's mind. Like 10 years later, I still have people talk about, oh, you know, there, there's a scene in, in Snowtown when um, the, the protagonist is attacked by his brother and there happened to be in the script was written that he's watching test cricket. Uh, you know, and there's someone's mowing the lawns outside and you can hear it. And that those sort of things link straight back to that's what I did when yeah. I was a teenage boy. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, it's funny how if you can connect to what it was like on, as for an individual, they automatically are immersed in the, in the film and, and can relate to it, even when it's so removed. It's the cafe scene where the four of them sit down and it's so awkward and yet so much is just unsaid. Um, in that in that moment, particularly given that the cafe is at the site um, of the shooting later. What exactly is going on here? Sorry, I don't know what you mean. He mows your lawn, you buy him a car. He mows it again, he moves in with you. What's next, marriage? He needed a car. He doesn't have a licence. I didn't know that. Yes, well, I guess you don't know everything. Don't you have your own children? No. I've got a husband. So which is he? A husband or a son? Uh, is, is that... Um, was that hard to write? Because it, it just sort of trails off and... Uh, you just see yeah, dis- disconcerted, <laughs> you know, these disconcerted faces. Well, I do remember in my research discovering that they had all been to the site prior to the event. And that was like, well, that's, you know, we have to see that. There's something specific about, okay, so what happened here that would take him back there and do such a heinous act? And um, so, yeah, so it was a creation of having, and, and, you know, when you've got a, you write a film and there's all these, you know, there's four integral characters, but they don't actually interact very often. You know, when they come together, you've got to, you know, do your best to write a really important and, and, and hopefully a great scene. And um, yeah, I, I hope that we achieve that. Um, people speak about that scene a lot. So sure. and Judy and Essie and Anthony and Caleb, they're also wonderful in it that, um, that it was really exciting. I was actually, I am very tucked away. I had to fill the corner of a frame in a shot. So I'm <laughs> sitting behind the four of them oh, as wow. Juz is directing them behind the camera. And I'm listening to this scene take place. Um, and it was, it was exciting on the day. Uh, I, I remember Judy and Essie's moment in particular is giving sort of the, the hair on the back of my neck standing up. What's, what was it like when you bought the guns out on this set? And how did you go about deciding to shoot the final moments of the film. It was truly awful when the guns came out, and it because we because we kind of shot it chronologically, you know, and we're all living together. We're all living together in Geelong. COVID was happening, you know, and we're in a bubble. And the crew and everyone were all sort of living at the Geelong Conference Centre. So we all we're all sort of one big kind of family working together and we've sort of got Caleb playing this, you know, particular character and you start it, you know, you start the film and, and, you know, there, there are family scenes and there are, there, there are scenes of sort of intimacy and connection and, and it's, it's really interesting in a film. You kind of, 
get lost in the the scenes that you're doing at the time as opposed to and then I just remember on the day when the guns came out and you suddenly go oh my god I don't see guns and the crew just looked at each other and went we you know I mean it's the most extraordinary thing about Australia you just don't see guns so and especially these guns semi-automatic weapons that are used on battlefield you know and it was an instant um shift and and I even noticed the crew's sort of relationship with that character and even with Caleb shifting, you know, where where it 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 really sort of marked the moment. Um, but it was it was horrifying. It was just horrifying. They are horrifying to look at. You know, when you you know, these, these aren't, you know, these aren't hunting rifles, you know, the, the, these are these are, you know, um military. Military. Yeah. And and it, 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 it shocked me how um, foreign they felt. So, you know, the, 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 the armour came on, put them on the table, and you could just see everyone sort of stand back and we'll walk back. Caleb starts to pick, pick one up, and you instantly felt um, uncomfortable. And, I mean, he would have a different relationship with guns because he's American, right? How did, Absolutely. What was that like? Well, for him... You know, when he went to school in Texas, you know, he went through security every morning to see whether someone was carrying a gun. You know, he's he's surrounded by mass shootings. Um, I think, you know, I think there's been over 275 mass shootings in America alone this year, just this year. You know, so there's a kind of everydayness that Caleb, you know, experiences. And I, and I have to say, even when we were over in Cannes and, you know, we're talking to Americans that have sort of seen the film, you get this real sense of hopelessness in them, of kind of like, you know, it's not when a gun comes out in Australia, everyone kind of goes, holy shit, what's that? It's kind of, well, that's just part of our culture and how do we, how the hell do we change this? So when you talk to them about our reforms changing bipartisan in 12 days, they're like, what? Mm. So, you know, for Caleb, it was really different. It, you know, it, the... The tragedy for him is he's saying it's every day, you know, and guns are around every day and they have been throughout my whole life. Um, and, you you know, you understand how sort of fortunate we are here that, that the, you know, that that aspect of the gun culture is, 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 is just no way near as prevalent as it is in America. Both Sean and Justin, you both made a lot of dark films. Does writing and directing these films affect your psyche or do you think you get desensitised after a period of time? Um, look, for me, uh, it definitely affects my psyche, sadly. Um, though people meet Justin and I and we actually uh, quite, quite enjoy a laugh and we're not nearly as... I think they expect us to be dressed all in black and very morose <laughs> individuals and we're, we're really not that. Um, but look, the, the greatest challenge for a writer, and particularly, I can only speak on behalf of myself, but um, with the, you know, with, with Snowtown and with, and with Knit Ram, um, the, the great challenge is when I'm writing them on my own. So essentially both were written, you know, conceived an idea and then I sat down and, and wrote them. And, and in that process, because you're not talking to anyone, like a, a director or a producer, and it's and it and it's then it becomes a piece of work. You're actually, you know, I'm in my room 
saying the lines out loud and, you know, and, and, and it becomes quite claustrophobic. So it's actually a relief when I've got to the end of it and, and, and I can give it to someone like Justin and we can look at it and talk about it in film terms because the, the hardest part in terms of my psyche is absolutely the first draft. Oh, yeah. um, particularly if, you know, I haven't mentioned it to, you know, True History was different because it was a book and Justin and I were on it very early together and we're, we're sh sharing those ideas very early. But for the first film and, the, and this most recent, um, it's me in a room and it becomes all too real and familiar. And, and then when I hand it over and producers come on board and cast, every, every person that comes into the world makes it that much easier, I think, for a writer to deal with. But the initial part, um, yeah, is, is really, really draining. I, I mean, I describe it best as Snowtown. Um, I was happily married when I started writing that screenplay and divorced by the second draft. Oh gosh. So uh, yeah, it, it wasn't the best period. Um, it, it, it can take a toll, but it, but it's great to have someone, particularly someone you trust. And it's probably why Justin and I continue to work together um, that you trust each other when dealing with exceptionally sensitive material. How about you, Justin? What does this do to you making these films? Yeah, it takes a bit out of you. I mean, I don't think Sean and I are looking for violent material. I, I really, you know, I, I think subconsciously, I think there's probably things that we find really interesting about what it says about Australian culture and what it says about Australian men and what it says about our history that I think we gravitate to. You know, with Snowtown, for me, it was, I was, you know, brought up in that area. I knew, I knew that area well and I felt like, you know, I needed to sort of tell that story. To me, it wasn't so much about the, the serial killings in Snowtown. It was it was actually about the community and and and, and how something like that can affect a community. Um, but I, you know, I. It's always just been the work. It's always been the scripts. You know, like Sean's written these scripts and they come to me and I really think they're amazing. So I feel like I need to make a film of them and. You know, and it, this one was really, really hard because I, you know, I know that it's, you know, the last thing I want to do is cause trauma for people, you know, and re-trigger trauma. And um, I know this is a really challenging one. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it felt like a story that, that needed to be told. I, I trusted the script and I trusted the way in which we would sort of go about it. And it hasn't stopped. I, you know, I feel incredibly nervous about it opening and um and, and it being out there and what the reaction is going to be um and yeah i mean i i'm, I'm you know sean and i it's interesting we you know we're, we're looking at what we want to do next and a rom-com perhaps well <laughs> we are we're, we're you know it, it, it's the first time that i think we've consciously gone what do we not want to be involved in what what where, what do we want to sit in and and what do we think is um, you know, and, and, and I've got to say, it was really interesting with Nit Ram because with our first film, a, a lot, you know, a lot of the violence was on screen and it was on screen for a particular reason. It was about the kind of corruption of a 16 year old and how violence starts to become them. And uh, there are particular scenes in that film that needed to go to a particular place uh, for us as filmmakers. With, with Nit Ram, it was the complete opposite. It was 
all about restraint. It was all about simplicity. It was, it was all about what leads to an event of, of violence. So, you know, it's sort of directing something that was to do with, with family and to do with relationships. Um, you know, I, I found, um, you know, to be really quite uh, important for me as a director. Um, and, and that restraint was really important. Um, so yeah, it's interesting at the moment. We're, we're, we're very much looking at things that, um, you know, are to do with a certain thing, but we have checked ourselves. You know, we are sort of thinking what, why are we attracted, not attracted, why are we interested in telling some stories that, that um, you know, have a certain darkness um, to them? I mean, this is a compliment. I felt physically unwell in the last um, 15 minutes or so of the film. I, the, the ball of dread in my stomach was palpable. Um, when I first heard of this project, I have to confess, I thought, why would we want to go there? Why would we want to tell this story and, and bring this awful thing back in this way, um, given the memories of it? I now completely get it, and I'm so glad that I went on this journey and understood the nature of the problems in this way. I'm just wondering... In terms of Tasmania, Justin, how's this going to go down? And particularly given that you're living there, um, um, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we're trying to do it in the most sensitive way. We're, we're still talking to cinemas down here about who will, who will release it, um, you know, and, and. You know, I appreciate and understand. I mean, what you know, I think when the discussion started, uh, which was a very strong discussion um, when we were filming about what was, um, you know, what was happening, um, that that we we're making a film about the Port Arthur shootings. Um, you know, I, I think there was a lot of discussion about the film that we weren't making. You know, it was it was. Uh, there was uh, an expectation that it was going to be a particular thing, and 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 that's hard, you know. That that you as you as a filmmaker are making something, and it's already being judged very heavily, and you're kind of, I guess, you're, um, you know, you're being questioned as a person and as a filmmaker as to uh, what you're doing. So, you know, in in some sense, it's really important this stage where we we feel, you know, like we need to show people. Um, the film that want to see it um, in Tasmania, you know, it, it, there is a there is a younger audience here that are very intrigued. I know, and um, you know, so look at you know who 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 you know weren't weren't born so around around the time of um, the the shootings. But you know, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a tricky one. There's part of me which is feeling really nervous and really scared about it and apprehensive about it and sort of not wanting, perhaps trying to protect um, those here from seeing the film. And there's another part of me that feels as though we need to create an opportunity for those that want to see it to be able to see it. Do you stay off social media or keep away from reviews or reactions to the film online? <laughs> uh, it's a, he, he, he reads yeah, read everything I'll, and I try to stay off it. And, then and I'll tell it, him. <laughs> uh, having, having... No, they are. Yeah. And, and... <clears throat> There's been some rave reviews, by the way. Let's be really clear that it's incredibly positive and, and so they should be. And I just want to be really clear having asked that question, Justin. I'd, 
I think it's an essential viewing. To, um, this keeps happening and it's a flaw in masculinity and in the way that we treat certain people. And I feel guilty about how I've treated people in my own past. No, um, no. Well, thank I, you for that, Dom, because I mean, that, that's, the, that's the reason I wrote it is that it keeps happening. And if it didn't keep happening, the film wouldn't need to exist. But I just kept seeing these boys, I'll use the word boys and not men, because just based on their actions, you know, these, these angry white men continually doing it. And I, and I could see that they had similar things in common, anger management issues, struggle at schools, quite often an absent father or a loss of one. And it was, that was why I investigated it. That was why I sat down to write it because of that, because, you know, I'm, I'm all for forgetting the man, but we shouldn't forget the events, you know, because if we do, evil ignored is evil repeated and, and it just continues to come about. So I was really, um, yeah, it's really nice of, to hear that from you. But no, you know, the, look, to, in my defence, Justin did send me a review yesterday <laughs> and it was a good one and he was finding them. I wasn't doing it. But yeah, you know, look, I do, I do clearly remember sitting down. I think it was Australia Day. Kelly Gang came out on stand, and for what? Speaking of uncomfortable things, Australia Day, yeah, 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 Invasion Day, and we and we took a, a very distinct take on Ned Kelly. <laughs> took an iconic character and put him in a dress, and and I knew it was going to be interesting. So I, yeah, the sick, tortured part of me sat on my couch on. And I'm not even on, I'm not on Instagram or Twitter or that, but I guess I could get on it. And I was seeing some, um, seeing some feedback from uh, some colorful feedback coming through, which, you know, look, I take it all with, uh, you know, you're never as good as people say, and you're never as bad as people say. Um, I'm a big believer in that. So I can, um, I've got a pretty thick skin to be a writer. You've got to have a very thick skin. So is, is there anything planned next? Do you think you'll end up doing the narrow road to the deep North or what projects yeah, are you looking at next? Oh, yeah. yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're really, we're really hoping to do that as a sort of TV series. It's an amazing book. And, um, Oh gosh, actually, you know, Sean and I were talking about it yesterday. It, it, it says a lot about how we view, uh, you know, that particular part of our history as, as, as well. I mean, I, I it's interesting, you know, Sean and I are, very we, we do seem to sort of look at certain things that reflect on 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 Australian history and 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 then I guess what they mean now um so uh yeah but um we're, we're really hoping that, that that it's 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 quite an ambitious project so we're um just trying to make sure that we can do it justice and do it well look if anyone could I I suspect the two of you could it's an extraordinary book and um I'm excited to hear that you're considering it. It's an extraordinary project. Um, I can't believe the subtlety, the beauty and the horror that you've managed to pack into um, this film and for making sure that we confront the difficult parts of our society and not just the happy-go-lucky parts. Um, and thanks for joining us. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Thanks so much, gentlemen. And thank you to everyone who listened to this extended episode. Our gear's from Rode Microphones and we're part of the ACAST Creator Network. We'll see you on Tuesday.